You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim diorgatis the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg cott i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show a conversation with memphis soul legend and multi-instrumentalist booker t jones Plus, fresh from tours opening for Bob Dylan, U2, and Pearl Jam, we have a new album from the Kings of Leon, and Greg Cott will have a Desert Island jukebox pick. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Greg, that is a track called The Beginning of the End. It is by Trent Reznor, better known to the world at large as Nine Inch Nails, from his new album, which is more than an album. Boy, this is a uh, a very well-planned, thorough warren of rabbit holes. It's a maze. (laughs) It's a concept album sprung to life, which is coming at people from numerous media all at once. The album's called Year Zero, and... It's more than an album, as I said. It's a CD booklet. It's a concept. It was the tour that preceded the release of the album. It's this grassroots marketing campaign using the web. People who saw Reznor and Nine Inch Nails on their last tour realized that there were uh, several slogans on the T-shirt they couldn't explain. One was, I am trying to believe. And by adding a dot-com to the end of that phrase, they began to find these interlocking websites that started to tell this story of this album. The album's a concept album. We're going to review it. But it's hard to talk about the marketing campaign without talking about the concept. In the year 2022, sometime in the future, there is this Orwellian universe that Reznor would like us to imagine in which things look a lot like today except taken to extremes. We're at war with the uh, Muslim world. Things are going badly. The government's getting panicked. As as an alleged prevention to bioterrorism, they have put a chemical in the drinking water <laughs> uh, uh, called parapin, which actually is a sort of Orwellian drug that's uh, getting people to kind of be zombies and just follow the, the lockstep march. All right, we're, we're in sci-fi territory here. We're in Weirdoville. But we're also in a very savvy, brilliant business move. One thing we've talked about in the news segment of Sound Opinions since we started the show here is how it's increasingly becoming obvious that artists have to give consumers more with the album than just the music because they're able to download tracks off the web now. Uh, in some cases, you can get them for free without paying for them. What is in it for me? You know, what else are you giving me? Used to be you'd buy a big old gatefold uh, double vinyl album and you got posters and stickers and all sorts of, and, and a place to fold your, your marijuana joints, right? Reznor's trying to put some fun. And Reznor and fun are two words that don't often go together. But with this new Nine Inch Nails album, he's trying to give you this world, this universe, this story. There are tracks that are floating out there that he's giving away for free. The first one was allegedly found by a fan at a Nine Inch Nails concert <laughs> on a flash drive. 
in Lisbon, Portugal, right? No, no, in, no, a in, in a bathroom stall. In a bathroom stall, right. <laughs> He's making this a lot of fun. What you're saying, Jim, is is really key because I think what Reznor is... He's battling for his life here as, as a viable, relevant recording artist. He's been around since 1989. He was one of the uh, rising stars of that alternative rock generation of the early 90s who came up with the Lollapalooza crowd, made a, several albums during that era which were huge sellers. He, he makes his albums very sporadically, very meticulously. Did not return until 1999 with his third album, The Fragile, you and I both agree one of the best albums of that era. A yeah, great but record. A commercial stiff. He went into a deep depression after that. Substance abuse uh, took a hold of him on, on subsequent tours. And he, he made that the subject of his next record, With Teeth, which came out in 2005. Uh, much more of a live rock sound on that record. And now suddenly, you know, two years later, he's back with his fifth studio record. Unusually short amount of time between no records time for at Reznor. all for Reznor. Yeah, yeah, indication that he's really energized again. And I think one of the things that energized him was exactly what you were talking about at the top of this show: giving consumers something extra beyond the music and returning to that era that he loved so much. When you did have those double gatefold sleeves and you did mm-hmm. have these elaborately packaged records, Reznor is doing that for the new media multimedia age uh, and extending this uh, campaign beyond the confines of a mere piece of music and turning it into a multimedia event. Uh, Year Zero is the name. Let's play a track from it and then give it a review. Uh, Capital G from Nine Inch Nails, Year Zero on Sound Opinion. I pushed a button and elected him to office and up. He pushed a button and dropped a bomb. You pushed a button and could watch it on the television. for something, but we've got nothing to be. Uh, some key lines from Capital G, one of the key tracks on uh, Year Zero. New album from uh, Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor doing this record essentially on a laptop computer, whereas the previous record had uh, had some live drummers on it and some organic guitar, bass, drum sound on it. The, the template for this record, you know, there's noises as important as melody. You have these beats, blips, grinding noises, trash compactors. Yeah. You know, <laughs> instead of guitar solos, you get what literally sounds like a piece of metal being fed into a uh, garbage disposal. I mean, yeah. it, it is really an, an extreme record. At the same time, Reznor's singing is very nuanced. I think there's some beautiful moments on this record where he drops his voice to barely above a whisper, and he's talking essentially, I think this is a record that, you know, talk about the concept, people are still trying to figure it out, as we were talking about through these all these multimedia things that he's doing online. I think this is a chronicle of the last days of Earth, basically. I mean, it ends with him watching the Earth rotate around the sun for the last time. Well, (laughs) year zero being today, and we are on this path, and unless we get off this path as he sees it, the end is common. Uh, Look, there's two things here. You know, one, yeah, the lyrics can seem a little silly at times, but 
he is very effectively creating a universe, no less so than Roger Waters did with The Wall. Sure. You know, you were going to buy into this guy losing his mind on stage and becoming this messianic rock star, or you weren't. You're going to buy into this vision of, of George Bush leading us to an Orwellian future, or you're not. And I don't know, it's a lot easier to buy this, I think, sometimes than, than The Wall's concept or Tommy's. It's really an ambitious record, and just as much musically, Greg. Like you said, this guy is a sonic architect. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Not only, you know, there's never anything that is clearly bass drums and guitar and keyboard you know he's inventing instruments basically building his own orchestra sometimes they're very familiar sounding there's a beautiful moment where it drops down to what sounds like somebody playing an african thumb piano yeah It's a beautiful record because he never skimps on the melodies. And so you have this incredible sonic stuff happening, assaulting you at all times. I, this is this is a record people are going to be listening to for years, trying to figure out how he built this sound. And I think on the buy it, burn it, trash it sound opinion scale, wow, Trent Reznor is uh, an alternative survivor who came back and gave us a masterpiece. Yeah. It's a buy it record. Yeah, the vocal melodies over those noise scapes, really inventive, telling the record from multiple perspectives. And you made the point earlier about Pink Floyd and The Wall. I draw it back to those classic, really ambitious records from those era, from that era. Pink Floyd's uh, The Wall, The Who's Quadrophenia. I think it's in that range in terms of its ambition. Uh, well, yeah, he's breaking I, new ground. And absolutely. the marketing fun is part of it. I mean, the fact that you can dig and dig and dig. Yeah. And, you, you know, you're going to find hidden videos on the web. Mm-hmm. You're going to find websites devoted to conversations. And, and people are making themselves part of the story. You know, we've been talking for a long time about the possibility of being able to interact with a piece of rock art that you really love. With this, Reznor is trying to invite people to continue the story and become part, and maybe that'll even include people adding new tracks about some of these characters and yeah, stuff. Yeah, once the record comes out, this is not over. This is going to go on for at least another year, it seems like, where clues are going to be divulged and, and pieces of the story are going to come together. So it really is, I think, a new plateau in terms of presenting a, a piece of music in, in a really inventive way and I agree with you total it's a buy I, I buy the album and I buy the concept I mean you know just keep going with this thing because I think it's really exciting That is Green Onions from Booker T and the MGs. How's that for an intro into music? Booker T Jones, a nobody in a Memphis recording studio in the early 60s, and that is his debut record. It goes on to sell a million copies. His career is off and running. Booker T. Jones goes on to work with people like Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Albert King, Wilson Pickett, goes on to produce Willie Nelson and Bill Withers on some of their most remarkable albums. What a career he's had. Uh, Jim, we were privileged on the 50th anniversary of Stax Records, the famous Memphis soul label, to interview Booker T. at the South by Southwest Music Conference. Booker T. was in town to perform, 
and uh, we're very happy to be able to interview him as well. Now, people know the other MGs. They know uh, Duck Dunn and, and Steve Cropper. They give a lot of interviews. Booker T doesn't talk that often, no. so it was we were lucky to be sitting there with him. I started the conversation not with that organ. The, the organ that he played on Green Onions is actually in the Stax Museum of American Soul Music. It's a point of pride to Booker that he never stopped his musical education and that he is a multi-instrumentalist. His first instruments were oboe, saxophone, tuba, piano, <laughs> guitar. It was only later this organ thing came, so that's where we started talking to him. Most of the instruments I learned uh, by necessity at, as a 10-year-old fourth grader whose first instrument was clarinet at uh, a little less than five feet tall. I was too small, too young, too short to get into the school band. And the blank chair, the, the, the empty chair, was uh, oboe. Mm. So I learned to play the oboe, and I learned how to make the reeds, and I learned how to play the solos, and I got into the band that way. A child prodigy, I guess is the way to describe it. Uh, Booker, I'm going to quote you from your own very own website. You're talking about music, the power of music. These sounds and sentiments on vinyl, 8-track, and MP3 are the threads that human souls balance so many of their emotions on. Almost all of our passages, weddings, funerals, loves, hates, are experienced with music as a backdrop. We soar to heights and fall to depths unmeasured with music as a backdrop. Very eloquent. The question is, what was your first series of musical moments that sort of where you realized the power of this thing and, and kind of realized that this is going to be your life? I had a dynamic musical mother. I think her influence on me was um, immeasurable because she had such a wonderful, deep, wide musical soul. So maybe then I realized I too would just hopefully have music in my life all my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Y- your parents were, were educated people. Your dad was an educator. Your mom, obviously, an co- accomplished musician. Mm-hmm. And yet you're running out of the house... As a kid, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old, years old, jamming with uh, Willie Mitchell in the Memphis clubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mom and dad thought that was okay? They had incredible faith in me and trust, and uh, they supported me. I was fortunate. Uh, most parents wouldn't have done that. My father took me to the clubs and waited for me outside or had friends to come and get me. Wow. And drove the bands to clubs in Arkansas and Mississippi with and stayed while we played and, and brought us back home. I was extremely fortunate to have a father who did that. That's the great untold story of rock and roll. I remember talking to Joey Ramone's mother about driving the boys in the station wagon to CBGB. It's the parents who waited outside the gig. That's the story, right, yeah, Booker? That's, that's right, yeah. So you were talking about your first session a little earlier in the green room. Tell us about that. I was still in high school, and um, Ahmed Erdogan had called my sister to get me to come and play on... Um, a Bobby Darren session in Hollywood. My sister drove me to Sunset Boulevard, and uh, there it all was, all laid out with music. Um, everybody was in one room, the Blossoms, <laughs> Jerry Wexler, Bobby Darren. There we were, recording. But that was the first time you were out of Memphis, probably even, right? Yes, I think it was, uh-huh. yeah. It's a good trip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, it was, yeah. My, my first trip outside of town was not, uh, 
<laughs> not at a session like that. So were you nervous? I mean, was that something that were you guys, I, I, what am I doing here? Do I belong here? Yeah, I was wondering if they'd made a mistake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, yeah. We want to take you through your career chronologically, touch on, on all the stuff. Obviously, Stacks is a part of that. There's a lot of Stacks in the air this week at South by Southwest, 50th anniversary. I got a real basic question. How did it come to be Booker T and the MGs? Um, I think it became Booker T and the MGs uh, because it was just such an odd occurrence that day. We had showed up. It was a recording session. We were we were the staff band for a, a, a guy that didn't show up, and we just happened to record a blues that Jim Stewart, the engineer, liked, and he decided, oh, well, we have a record here. Uh, and then uh, they said, well, you know, we need something for the B side of it. Do you guys have something for that? And so then we recorded what became Green Onions for the B side of it. None of it was meant to be. I mean, and we didn't know that this ever was going to go forward into the future. So it became Booker T and the MGs because Al Jackson said, okay, well, you know, who are we going to call the band? He said, well, Booker T and the uh, looked outside the window and uh, Chip's moment had a little MG car parked out on the street there. <laughs> Booker T and the MGs. And I mean, it was all just a little bit more than a joke. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're very casual about it. And in a lot of ways, even as a young man, it seemed like you had ambitions and you had plans. I mean, you were going to college at the same time. You just recorded Green Onions, and then you made the eight-hour drive back to college, as I recall, right? <laughs> like well, within a couple of days. Green Onions happened just before I graduated from high school, and college was in my plan before, yeah. before we made the record. Um, and, and the record fit in well with my college plans because I had no money to go to college. So, <laughs> yeah. There must have been a ton of pressure. I mean, Green Onions sold... 750,000 copies was a huge hit really put stacks on the map mm -hmm. and you're the house band they, they probably wanted you in there seven days a week 24 hours a day yeah. cranking out hits and mm -hmm. said no i'm going to college yeah i was pretty stubborn about it and um it, it became a point of contention a number of times yeah I've got a philosophical question, Booker, about those stacks years in the, the rock encyclopedias in the history books you are one of the greatest sidemen in the history of the music what about that word? Well, I've got a, a, I've got a lot thing? of pleasure from being a sideman and and a songwriter for other people. I mean, I've learned a lot and I've I've benefited in in many ways from doing that. I still uh, do that. I I think it elevates me uh, to be a sideman in in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not something you've ever it, it, you've taken it with pride. Yeah, and I think if I were only solo all this time, it, it might have been quite a bit more narrow. I've been exposed to different types of music and. And I think my career would have been a lot more uh, restricted. Booker T. Jones, once again in his role as a sideman. Man, what a sideman he was. Uh, not only the Hammond organ, but on that track playing the tuba for Soul Man by Sam and Dave. Guy could do everything. When we come back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to have more with Booker T. Jones, including his work with Neil Young and that amazing night with Otis Redding at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to a little bit of Hip Hugger, one of many examples of the great Stax soul sound that our guest Booker T. Jones helped to create. We asked him about this in an interview taped before a live studio audience at South by Southwest. Jim and I, as music critics, want to thank you, Booker. It's long overdue because Stax Volt, the Stax sound, it's it's critical journalistic shorthand. We don't have to explain a whole lot. We just say, oh, it's the stack sound. And there's maybe like, you can count on, on the fingers of two hands at most, maybe defining sounds of the last, you know, half century. Yours was one of them. You were integral to that. There was maybe five, six key people in that sound. And then there's a lot of debate about what made that sound. We actually had ducked on on the show a couple of years ago and, uh, we were talking about well, I never changed my bass strings. That was kind of the, that was one of the keys to the sound, you know. Just those were that, that dirty sound. I just wanted to keep it dirty and gritty. And, and they were dirty. Uh, yeah, and and uh, Al Jackson too. You you helped bring Al two stacks. Um, you you've been playing with him in the Memphis clubs. But what was your take on it? What made that sound what it was? Well, hearing you mention Al, it makes me realize that the a lot of the stack sound did come and originate from him and his own um, refusal to uh, allow the beat to be too um, not well-defined. insistent that we that we have this attitude that and and maybe that became uh, infectious maybe that kind of infected everybody that we have this attitude that this music is just going to be pushing uh, some kind of limit most of the songs that came out of stacks have that feeling of oh my goodness listen to that Obviously, you were hearing what was going on in popular culture and music at the time, the Motown thing, and a lot of was made, Stax versus Motown, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and, and a lot of people said, you guys were the true soul thing. You, you had the true grit. I mean, did you see it that way in terms no, of North no. versus South and in terms of the sound? No, no, it wasn't versus. We listened to their records because we loved them, uh, but we weren't in competition with them. But uh, we weren't making music that was as laid back as theirs in any, in any case. But uh, no, no, we didn't see them uh, as uh, adversaries at all. No. What happened on that European tour in the spring of 67? Yeah. Those tempos were unbelievable. That yeah. was punk rock, man. Yeah. <laughs> was you guys like, are doing speed, What right? happened on that tour? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, was, I, I, I spent a lot of energy trying to figure out what was going on. There was something going on between uh, Otis Redding and Al Jackson. Uh, you know, they were both possessed people. And uh, sometimes they were at odds, but yeah, the tempos were up there, and uh, yeah, I mean, the people loved it, and, and, and that, that tour had a special energy. Shake, shake, 
what was Monterey Pop like? Monterey, Monterey Pop, Pop was uh, probably my second real big eye-opening experience, pers- personally, because I landed back in the United States and saw something I would never have ever guessed I would have seen here. It was just an amazing... Uh, uh, there were, there were, the, the, the police had relinquished the city hmm. to the Hells Angels. <laughs> oh, no, this is true. This is true. This is true. Our escorts into the festival were Hells Angels motorcycle guys who were making sure that we didn't, you know, get stopped on the street or whatever. Yeah. And things went a lot better there than they would at Altamont a couple of years later. Well, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. This is the love crowd, right? We all love each other, don't we? Am I right? I've been loving you too long to stop now. I think that as music lovers, we tend to glamorize these things. The concert you did at Madison Square Garden for Dylan or Monterey Pop. But are they really different when you're on stage and you look out? I mean, are you, were you sta- sitting there playing at Monterey Pop thinking, you know, this is what I'm going to remember as opposed to what I did on Tuesday night? In that sense, it's not glamorized at all because it was just an unbelievable experience for all of us on stage, uh, looking at the audience and playing the music and the things that happened before the concert, the, con- the conversations in the dressing room, the people that you met in the dressing room, the whole, the whole experience was just surreal and so different from everyday life. It was a life-changing experience for me and probably for a lot of people. And it, it, was a, it was a confirmation that uh, people's hearts can change, and it was a confirmation of a lot of things that, that people were trying to uh, get going in the 60s and had no, no success with. It was an affirmation that um, people could really care about each other and cooperate. It was crazy. This is Sound Opinions. You're listening to a discussion by Greg Cott and myself with Booker T. Jones at the South by Southwest Music Festival. One of the threads throughout Booker's career is that he constantly challenged himself to try new things. In 1969, Booker T. and the MGs branched out and did their rendition of Abbey Road, which uh, we're hearing underneath. Then, in 1970, Booker left Stax and a steady stream of jobs to go to California and expand his sound, work also as a producer. It just so happened that uh, his new neighbor, downstairs neighbor, would be somebody he'd get to produce, uh, one Willie Nelson. We asked Booker about what it was like to work with Willie. Uh, that was great because we were, we were in new territory and we both loved it and uh, we were doing songs that we loved, old songs, great old songs that we had just, he had done them for years in clubs and so had I and so it was a reunion in a way uh, to get to, do the, to record those songs. So we just had a great time doing that. That, that was the Stardust record in, in yeah. 77. Yeah. I mean, here you have possibly the biggest country artist of that era. Mm-hmm. Had a string of hits with the so-called outlaw country sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you yourself had a history in R&B. I mean, a, lot, mm-hmm. a lot of people knew you primarily through those Stax records at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you make this record of standards mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that had been out of the lexicon of pop culture for at least a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. How did you guys, I mean, I, first of all, you must have drove the record company guys nuts proposing something like that. And then secondly, how did you guys hatch that idea in the first place? Well, Willie's a magician. You know, those were the songs that we uh, were jamming on. And I say he's a magician because uh, he, he he didn't impose this on the on the record company. He's just like, well, hey, we really need to go in the studio and do this, you know. And so uh, he got a friend, Brian Ahern, who had a truck, and a, another friend, uh, Amy Lou Harris, who had a house in Beverly Hills. And we went into her house to do the recording and move the mics and everything inside the house. And and the truck was in the driveway, and, and uh, we just we just did it. I mean, and Columbia, you know, they were pretty much on his side, and they were they weren't sure, but. When we played the album for them, they they really liked it. They didn't know if the public would like it, but they liked it. So they printed a few copies, and that was all we really needed. Georgia, Georgia, no peace I find. Just an old sweet song keeps Georgia. On my mind Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind You've never wanted to be boxed in. Don't label me. You know, it's like, yes, you're labeled the the organist sideman of all time, but a lot of the the stuff you contributed to records you played on was guitar. Yeah. And as producer, you know, working with Rita Coolidge, was your your uh, your wife's sister, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, working with Bill Withers. My then wife. <laughs> then wife, yes. Uh, Bill Withers. <laughs> uh, Willie Nelson, later on Neil Young. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a really diverse list of, of people to have worked with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there yeah. are a few resumes that are that all over the map. Yeah, that's, you know, it's it's the spice in my life that... Uh, that that diversity, I, I love it. You know, it's. You know, Jim brought up uh, Bill Withers and "Ain't No Sunshine." Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone, and she's always gone too long. Anytime she goes away. And really, you talk about a sound. You had the the stack sound. I think there was the, there was a Bill Withers sound mm-hmm. that was incredibly influential that you helped build because this guy was this gifted songwriter who really didn't have a career. I mean, he he didn't think his songs would ever be recorded by anyone. Mm-hmm. I think he was like building airplane toilets in yeah. a factory yeah, or something. Yeah, he was working like in Englewood. Uh huh. Yeah. So he comes to you, and you end up you end up producing his first record, which becomes a huge hit. And I think there was an anecdote that I heard, and, and, and tell me if this is correct. Withers goes, well, okay, you're assembling this band for him, and he goes, well, who's going to sing the songs? Yeah, that was, that, was one of the, that was one of the amazing times in my career. I'll never forget it. We were standing there in the control room. Everyone was there. Everything was set. Uh, and Bill just kind of stopped and said, Booker, who's going to sing this? <laughs> and uh, there was only one other person. I said, you are. You are, Bill. And then he went out and he sang. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's just house, just ain't no home. Anytime she goes away. 
let's ask you about Neil Young. You produced a record with him and got to tour with him. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, Neil is is this intense personality, um, and music is just his uh, entire being. But we met on the Bob Dylan show, mm. and uh, we ended up playing on one of the songs for the Bob Dylan tribute. He's he's a great friend also. Uh, he, he, there's just so many parts to Neil that I don't know where to start. Well, he wanted to go in that album in a soul direction, uh-huh. but you know Neil never wants to do anything simple. So he kept uh, San Pedro around to play the guitar because he wanted to still have some of the grungy, crazy horse rock. Okay. You're talking about Are You Passionate? That right. You Are You Passionate yeah. is the record. How does something like that begin? Does Neil sit down and say, ah, I've got this idea, Booker, I want you to help me get it? Or, do you, or is it so much more organic than that? Do you just wind up going up to his ranch and playing? Well, both. You know, that's <laughs> both. Yeah. And each song began in a different way. Uh, he's completely open-minded. So every song began in a different way, uh, sometimes on acoustic guitar. And the instruments were just amazing, sometimes marimbas or people. He's open to just amazing all the ideas, you know, for people to come in and sing or, or not. Mm. It, it has, has tape running all the time. He's got cameras rolling all the time. I mean, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> brought up you'd met Neil Young at the Bob Dylan 30th anniversary concert uh, in the early 90s at Madison Square Garden. I actually covered that show. There was this incredible array of artists there. Mm-hmm. As I recall, were, were you not backing up most of the musicians on stage that night? Yeah, I think we played behind almost everybody. Yeah, <clears throat> which is a huge me. task. You had mm-hmm. to learn all that music. Yeah. Uh, you know, days of rehearsals. Was there any challenge more daunting than, than the others in terms of, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to back up this, this particular artist? Mm-hmm. These interviews all are always kind of self-incriminating <laughs> because you're asked to tell the truth about people, you know. <laughs> yes, yes, you know, there were, um, I, I had a hard time with Eric Clapton, uh, but uh, we came up with some beautiful, beautiful music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what was it about Clapton? Was it just the, the song, the melody, the... He did something you would never guess he would do. He walked into the studio and he said, you know, uh, uh, he he didn't know how he wanted to do the song. You would never guess that from Eric Clapton, I mean, because he's a huge star. He would never, I didn't say any of that. (laughs) (laughs) That part's off the record. (laughs) This is a man who liked to be prepared, so I can see where he'd be. uh... Professionalism. Yeah. Yes. Seems uh-huh. like you can you can deal with oh, uh, have any kind of genre, respect. any kind let, of quirk. Let me stop now. I'm going to fix that. I have the utmost respect for Eric Clapton. I love everything he's ever done. I love the cream. I love Ginger Baker. I love everything he ever touched. Okay. But when you work with people, you want them to come in and you want them to be ready to go. No, right? I didn't want that. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I just didn't expect it. What, what, what do you look for, Booker, for people you're going to make music with in 2007? Sinead O'Connor. <laughs> You look for Sinead? Wasn't that a hell of an answer? She's no, I don't look for Sinead O'Connor. <laughs> that night at... at uh, well, that was going to be my next question about that. That night at the garden, yeah. Did that blow your mind? Absolutely. Well, Neil, uh, Neil Young, I happened to interview him the next day 
and he was the artist that went on stage after Sinead had her moment, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, where she basically, for those of you who don't know, Sinead O'Connor had just ripped up the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live, I think like a week or two before this concert. And she went on stage to sing, and basically, I think she started to sing, but you couldn't tell because the booing was so loud, and people were just drowned her out. And she broke down in tears, and Chris Christopherson finally helped lead her off the stage, and it was a, it was a meltdown moment. Uh, you know, you could literally see an artist's career sort of, there it was, you know, the, the moment where artist's career is never the same again. So Neil Young was the artist that followed her on stage. And I asked Neil, what was that like? Did you have any empathy for her? Did you feel like you needed to say something to that audience? And he says, no, I don't, I'm not there to review the audience. I'm there to do my thing, you know? And people get booed all the time and basically... Good answer. Tough. <laughs> you know? Good answer. Where were you? Uh, your perspective is interesting because I was on stage. Where were you? I was actually kind of above the stage on the side. So I was probably in the third balcony looking down on, right on the side of the stage. So you couldn't see or hear everything? No. Okay. <laughs> Some frightening stuff. Yeah. No. <laughs> what were you hearing that was... That was well, she never started to sing. Hmm. Trying to remember exactly what she did. She did nothing. She stood up there and got nailed, right? So what you're saying is maybe she should have started the performance and... I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But it, needless to say, that's something you hadn't experienced. I mean, uh, it's interesting. It was a first. That's another one that goes on the list. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a first. All right, let me try this again. Moving forward, making new music today. Mm-hmm. What, uh, you, you play with a lot of people. You just played with the drive-by truckers the other night. Yeah, yeah, was that was fun. fun. Yeah. Um, but, but when you're recording now, what are you going to look for in people that, that you want to make a record with? Uh, I'm going to look for that, that special thing that I've found in the past, and I'm, and I'm finding it in people. That mm. special thing, you know, the special thing that I found in Steve Cropper and Al Jackson, you know, that, that, that's in new people, too. And, mm. and I'm finding it, and I'm very gratified and, and very happy with I'm very excited about my future, my musical future, yeah. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to review an album by modern-day Southern rockers Kings of Leon, and Greg Cott will have a Desert Island jukebox pick.
Sliding off in a coupe de ville She's buckled up on navy She don't care what her mama said No, she's gonna have my baby Taking all I have to take Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is uh, the Kings of Leon from their new record, Because of the Times. Uh, indelicately titled opening track, Knocked <laughs> Up. Guess what that's about? Uh, She's going to have his baby. Yeah. Seven minutes of uh, running away. They're going to have that baby no matter what. Third album from Kings of Leon, a uh, Nashville quartet. Uh, three brothers and a cousin, the Followill Brothers. They are the sons of a Southern Pentecostal preacher. Came out with their debut album in 2003 uh, when many of them were still in their teens. Signed to uh, the Strokes record label RCA and got noticed because they went out on tour. Kings of Leon sort of following along in their coattails a bit and getting noticed with a sound uh, that had been compared, I think, wrongly to the Strokes, much more influenced by uh, 70s Southern rock. In fact, they owe much more to Leonard Skinner than, than they do to the Strokes. They're now on album number three, the more mature third record. <laughs> uh, because of the times, yeah, they've grown up a little bit. They've kind of developed their sound. They're taking some more chances. We're going to get to the review in a minute, but let's play a track from the new Kings of Leon record. It's called McFearless on Sound Opinions. <laughs> McFearless from the third album by Kings of Leon because of the times. Greg, I loathe this album with a bile <laughs> I reserve for very special occasions, and I'll tell you why. Kings of Leon on their first two records were essentially a uh, garage rock take or a slightly hipper take on the Black Crows, playing that southern classic rock of mm. the 70s with a little bit of an underground alternative uh, garage rock, indie, whatever attitude you want to say, okay? It wasn't great. It was good in small doses. Then they started to get heavily hyped by RCA Records. They went out on tour opening in arenas, enormodomes, megadomes for Bob Dylan, for Pearl Jam, and worst of all, for U2. What you can hear in Mick Fearless. They have rejiggered the guitar sound of mm -hmm. this band throughout this album to have that heavy, echo-drenched, reverb-laden, chorused 
cliched U2 guitar sound that The Edge was doing circa the Joshua Tree long time ago. Even The Edge doesn't sound like that Edge anymore. These guys are trying to sound like that Edge. I've seen some interviews where they've been talking about we played these arenas and we would play when people were still filing in with their hot dogs and just getting there, parking the car, and you know, we loved the way that music would sound in these big open expanses. Look, kids, that's not how rock and roll is ever supposed to sound. You know, arenas are a bad place to see music, period. But then to be like the opening band playing to the empty arena and to think that's what you should sound like on this record, when you have a, a track like what we came in with, Knocked Up, and you know, he, he wants her to have his baby, and he's <laughs> taking mom off, and it's, you know, it's retro, it's sexist, it's stupid, mostly. And it's seven minutes long. Even the tracks like McFearless that are four minutes long seem to be about 12 minutes long. If you're Neil Young and Crazy Horse, one of the bands that Kings of Leon used to worship, you'd get away with that because the guitars and the, the hypnotic rhythm section delivered the goods, right? You can just sing, down by the river, I shot my baby. You can sing that for 12 minutes if you're Neil Young and get away with it. You can't if you're Caleb Followell. Not when your guitars suck, when you have no melodies, you have nothing to say. And I mean, this is a bad, bad, bad record. It is a trash it record on our scale. I love that they tick you off so much. That makes me like this record even more. <laughs> Because I, I think that one of the things about these guys that ticks people off is that they are, in fact, Southern and unapologetically Southern. That's why I so loathed those comparisons they were getting to the Strokes three or four years ago. Was, oh, they're cool because they sort of sound like these New York bands. And they kind of got this garage rock sound, which was kind of hip at the time. No, they, they didn't want any part of that. To my mind, this is a sloppy Southern rock band to its core. They are not super smart guys. This guy's slurry, blurry vocals. I mean, I'm kind of glad I don't know exactly what he's singing about. You know, it's nasty stuff. I don't really want to know all the details. But I love their approach in concert. I love the guitar sound that you loathe so much. I think it's big. It's nasty. You're it's buying meaty. this edge. That's not big and nasty. It's heavily oh, echoed. It's silly. There's some it's of that. Silly. There's some of that on this record. There's tons but, of it on that. But there's also record. a lot of blues inflections. There's not. You know, blues. Blues is such a loathed art form these days. It's any anybody who plays any blues licks is immediately looked upon as retro and out of well, date. If you're and Johnny Lang, guys, yeah. If and you're these Johnny guys Lang. and these guys are retro and kind of out of date, and they unapologetically so. I think they're way better than the, than the Black Crows, who uh, are a band that has gotten into this jam mode that is, that is really despicable. Well, that's where these, these guys, guys are do going. Write, these guys do write songs, you know? They do stomp those boot heels down, and they do crank up those guitars. It's a nice, messy sound. They would have been perfect as the band in Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. They should have been Stillwater. That's uh, an insult to my friend Cameron Crowe. <laughs> and I have nothing against the South. Some of my best friends are Southern. I'm saying this band sucks because they're doing bad imitation U2 circa the third album, like I, Boy I don't or think, War. I, and that's why they suck, okay? I don't think they're imitating anybody other than these out-of-fashion well, heroes what about, from Southern rock in the about, 70s. What about Charmer, which is a blatant Pixies ripoff, note for note, I don't buy that for either. rhythm, guitar I, for guitar. Frank Black Yelp for Frank Black Yelp. It's a oh, you know. How about listen to that song. I don't understand the Pixies' comparison at all on that track. You These haven't guys listened to the sound, track. 
I've listened to the Pixies. I've listened to this band. There's no comparison. Ah. There are different bands. These guys sound like their own thing. I don't think they made a great beginning-to-end record, but this is a burn-it record for me, and I think they have their charms as a live band. I'm sorry. You're nuts. I'm trashing it, and I'm sticking <laughs> with it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Every week here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I takes a turn and pops a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. Mr. Cott, your pick. Jim, uh, we have just debated the merits of Southern Rock or the demerits of Southern Rock, and uh, I would like to extend the conversation further with the D.I.J. and pay tribute to one of my favorite bands and one of the most misunderstood bands of all time. Molly Hatchet? (laughs) No, Molly Hatchet, uh, I think we understand them all too well. Leonard Skinner, on the other hand, I do not think gets the credit it deserves, however. Probably known best for two things. Freebird. Freebird. <laughs> Freebird. That's three things. Uh, the fourth thing being that they went down in a plane crash in uh, 1977 in which uh, lead singer Ronnie Van Zant and two other band members were killed. They've since resurrected themselves in various incarnations over the years, but really it's never been the same since uh, lead singer Ronnie Van Zant went down, and with good reason. Ronnie Van Zant, I think, was uh, in many ways the best of the Southern rock vocalists in that he sort of broke the formula. He broke the mold. When you think about Southern rock vocalists, you think about somebody like Greg Allman, a, a guy really steeped in the blues. Ronnie Van Zant was, uh, was much more subtle, much more of an insinuating vocalist, much more slippery, much more sly than any other Southern rock vocalist. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. They think about Leonard Skinner and you think about Confederate flags and gun racks, you know. <laughs> Ronnie sort of played up to that stereotype in a way by showing up barefoot on stage wearing these ankle-length duster coats and a cowboy hat. But these guys would also play parties at Phil Walden, uh, their record company executive's uh, estate, where a young governor named Jimmy Carter would be there. So, you know, there was an enlightened South being born at the same time. You're right. Exactly. There was an enlightened aspect to the art and the songwriting. Simple Man, Tuesday's Gone. These songs show a sort of a higher consciousness about a lot of issues. great example of it is is the song I'm going to play, Saturday Night Special. These guns, these cheap handguns, were rampant in the South at the time, killing a lot of people that Ronnie Van Zant knew. Uh, the combination of whiskey and a Saturday night special was just absolutely lethal. But he wrote a very eloquent song, and one of the nastiest songs in the, in, in the Leonard Skinner uh, canon. And what I love about the song is that he just sort of tells a tale... And, you know, at the end, you can sort of see him, you know, for $20, you can buy one, too. You know, the Uh way he would just sort of slyly slip these little lines in there and make you realize, you know, how stupid can you be to buy one of these things and, and have it in your home or have it in your car? A really underrated vocalist, an underrated band. Here's Saturday Night Special from Leonard Skinner. Stop. 
Saturday night special from Leonard Skinner, 1975 album, Nothing Fancy, my Desert Island jukebox pick for this week. Next week, Jim, we have Joe Boyd, one of the uh, key behind-the-scenes figures in music for the last 30, 40 years. He discovered people like Pink Floyd, uh, Fairport Convention, Nick Drake, and he's going to tell us how he did it next week. Got some thank yous to say on the way out. Andy Flynn at uh, South by Southwest hooked us up with Booker T. Jones. It was a real treat to do that down there. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader is Tori Southside Malatia, who was to have been the fifth MG. But something happened. Leonard Skinner asked him to replace Ronnie Van Zandt. Man. Uh, and, you know, he turned that job down, He too. gets around. He needs to make better career choices, though. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. Come on, Anna. Answer your phone. Answer your phone. Pick up the receiver. I know that you're at home. New messages. Hey, my name is Mike Miller. I'm calling from San Francisco, and I've recently discovered the podcast, and I'm a huge, huge fan, and I wanted to thank you so much for the uh, Elephant Six show. Also, I wanted to thank you guys and Jason Lytle for introducing me to Midlake a little ways back. Um, downloaded hours and hours and hours of your show, and uh, one of the most entertaining things I've ever heard on the radio show was uh, Jim going off on Bruce Springsteen. And I completely agree. It was incredibly entertaining, but you gotta let uh, you gotta let Greg talk too, you know. So as long as you let him talk, yeah, please let the world know how awful Bruce Springsteen is, because I'm right there with you on that one. Anyway, thanks for a great show. I look forward to it every week. Take care. They tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no. Hello, this is Rose. Greetings from Omaha. I just have to let you know that your comments about that gin-soaked poser Amy Winehouse were spot on. I don't understand the brouhaha about her. I think she's a marginal talent and she's got so much affected substance and her style is just going nowhere as far as I'm concerned. It's an interesting juxtaposition, you know, when you have a real talent like Nico Case who came across as very engaging and very funny and very refreshing. says a lot about music in our time that you can have someone as hyped up as Winehouse and someone like Nico Case who not a lot of people are familiar with, but Fortunately, we have your show to put people straight and keep up the good work. Thank you. Uh, my name is John Haskell from Chicago, and 
Well, I appreciate that Count Basie would recognize his name. It's Shirley Bassey, as in the fish. I think she would probably appreciate that pronunciation anyway. Thanks. Hey, this is Ron from Chicago. Loved your uh, spot on Portishead. Uh, Trip-hop was a genre that came and went way too fast. One of my favorites, which sort of had the same career track. Sneaker Pimps. Terrible band name, but great first album. Beautiful, you know, vocals and uh, very lovely and trippy. But the good work. Bye. Hi, this is Ed Hotter from Berea, Ohio. You know, a good mocking can ruin a piece of music forever. My wife hasn't listened to Al Stewart in almost 20 years now, so it can be a force for good. During your review of the December's The Crane Wife, one of you delivered a classic mock to the song The Island. I still have this record in rotation, and I still hear you every time that part in the song comes up. La- But I love the music, and I think it takes a special piece of music to overcome a really good mocking. But the Decemberists uh, did it. Kudos to them. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Love